Third Part, Chapter 3 of Essay on the Creative Imagination. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Essay on the Creative Imagination by Théodule Ribot. Third Part, The Principal Types of Imagination. Chapter 3, Mystic Imagination. Mystic imagination deserves a place of honor, as it is the most complete and most daring of purely theoretic invention. Related to diffluent imagination, especially in the latter's effective form, it has its own special characters, which we shall try to separate out. Mysticism rests essentially on two modes of mental life, feeling, which we need not study, and imagination, which in the present instance represents the intellectual factor. Whether the part of consciousness that this state of mind requires and permits be imaginative in nature and nothing else, it is easy to find out. Indeed, the mystic considers the data of sense as vain appearances, or at the most as signs revealing and frequently laying bare the world of reality. He therefore finds no solid support in perception. On the other hand, he scorns reasoned thought, looking upon it as a cripple, halting halfway. He makes neither deductions nor inductions, and does not draw conclusions after the method of scientific hypotheses. The conclusion, then, is that he imagines, that is, that he realizes a construction in images that is for him knowledge of the world, and he never proceeds, and does not proceed here, save ex analogia hominis. 1. The root of the mystic imagination consists of a tendency to incarnate the ideal in the sensible, to discover a hidden idea in every material phenomenon or occurrence, to suppose in things a supernatural principle that reveals itself to whoever may penetrate to it. Its fundamental character, from which the others are derived, is thus a way of thinking symbolically, but the algebraist also thinks by means of symbols, yet it is not on that account a mystic. The nature of this symbolism must then be determined. In doing so, let us note, first of all, that our images, understanding the word image in its broadest sense, may be divided into two distinct groups. 1. Concrete images, earliest to be received, being representations of greatest power, residues of our perceptions, with which they have a direct and immediate relation. 2. Symbolic images, or signs, of secondary acquirement, being representations of lesser power, having only indirect and mediate relations with things. Let us make the differences between the two clear by a few simple examples. Concrete images are, in the visual sphere, the recollection of faces, monuments, landscapes, etc., in the auditory sphere, the remembrance of the sounds of the sea, wind, the human voice, a melody, etc., in the motor sphere, the tossing one feels when resting after having been at sea, the illusions of those who have had limbs amputated, etc. Symbolic images are, in the visual order, written words, ideographic signs, etc., in the auditory order, spoken words or verbal images, in the motor order, significant gestures, and even better, the finger language of deaf-mutes. Psychologically, these two groups are not identical in nature. Concrete images result from a persistence of perceptions, and draw from the latter all their validity. Symbolic images result from a mental synthesis, from an association of perception and image, or of image and image. If they have not the same origin, no more do they disappear in the same way, as is proven by very numerous examples of aphasia. 
The originality of mystic imagination is found in this fact. It transforms concrete images into symbolic images and uses them as such. It extends this process even to perceptions, so that all manifestations of nature or of human art take on a value as signs or symbols. We shall later find numerous examples of this. Its mode of expression is necessarily synthetic. In itself, and because of the materials that it makes use of, it differs from the affective imagination previously described. It also differs from sensuous imagination, which makes use of forms, movements, colors, as having a value of their own, and from the imagination developing in the functions of words through an analytic process. It has thus a rather special mark. Other characters are related to this one of symbolism, or else are derived from it. Namely, 1. An external character, the manner of writing and of speaking, the mode of expression, whatever it is. The dominant style among mystics, says von Hartmann, is metaphorical in the extreme, now flat and ordinary, more often turgid and emphatic. Excess of imagination betrays itself there, ordinarily, in the thought and in the form in which that is rendered. A sign of mysticism, which it has been believed may often be taken as an essential sign, is obscurity and unintelligibility of language. We find it in almost all those who have written. We might add that even in the plastic arts, symbolists and decadents have attempted, as far as possible, methods that merely indicate and suggest, or hint, instead of giving real, definite objects, which fact makes them inaccessible to the greater number of people. This characteristic of obscurity is due to two causes. First, mystical imagination is guided by the logic of feeling, which is purely subjective, full of leaps, jerks, and gaps. Again, it makes use of the language of images, especially visual images, a language whose ideal is vagueness, just as the ideal of verbal language is precision. All this can be summed up in a phrase, the subjective character inherent in the symbol. While seeming to speak like everyone else, the mystic uses a personal idiom. Things become symbols at the pleasure of his fancy. He does not use signs that have a fixed and universally admitted value. It is not surprising if we do not understand him. 2. An extraordinary abuse of analogy and comparison in their various forms, allegory, parable, etc. A natural consequence of a mode of thinking that proceeds by means of symbols, not concepts. It has been said, and rightly, that the only force that makes the vast field of mysticism fruitful is analogy. Bossuet, a great opponent of mystics, has already remarked, One of the characteristics of these authors is the pushing of allegories to the extreme limit. With warm imagination, having at their disposal over-excited senses, they are lavish of changes of expression and figures, hoping thereby to explain the world's mysteries. We know to what inventive labors the Vetus, the Bible, the Koran, and other sacred books have given rise. The distinction between literal and figurative sense, which is boundlessly arbitrary, has given commentators a freedom to imagine equal to that of the myth-creators. All this is yet very reasonable, but the imagination left to itself stops at no extravagance. After having strained the meaning of expressions, the imaginative mind exercises itself on words and letters. Thus the Kabbalists would take the first or the last letters of the words composing a verse, and would form with them a new word, which was to reveal the hidden meaning. Again, they would substitute for the letters composing words the numbers that these letters represent in the Hebrew numerical system, and form the strangest combinations with them. In the Sohar, 
all the letters of the alphabet come before God, each one begging to be chosen as the creative element of the universe. Let us also bring to mind numerical mysticism, different from numerical imagination heretofore studied. Here number is no longer the means that mind employs in order to soar in time and space. It becomes a symbol and material for fanciful construction. Here arise those sacred numbers teeming in the old oriental religions. Three, the symbol of trinity. Four, symbol of the cosmic elements. Seven, representing the moon and the planets, etc. In such notions may perhaps be best found the genesis of the present superstitions in regard to lucky and unlucky numbers, like the number thirteen, which have such persistence. Besides these fantastic meanings, there are more complicated inventions, calculating, from the letters of one's name, the years of life of a sick person, the auspices of a marriage, etc. The Pythagorean philosophy, as Zeller has shown, is the systematic form of this mathematical mysticism, for which numbers are not symbols of quantitative relations, but the very essence of things. This exaggerated symbolism, which makes the works of mystics so fragile, and which permits the mind to feed only on glimpses, has nevertheless an undeniable source of energy in its enchanting capacity to suggest. Without doubt, suggestion exists also in art, but much more weakly, for reasons that we shall indicate. 3. Another characteristic of mystic imagination is the nature and the great degree of belief accompanying it. We already know that when an image enters consciousness, even in the form of a recollection, of a purely passive reproduction, it appears at first, and for a moment, just as real as a precept, much more so in the case of imaginative constructions. But this illusion has degrees, and with mystics it attains its maximum. In the scientific and practical world, the work of the imagination is accompanied by only a conditional and provisional belief. The construction in images must justify its existence, in the case of the scientist, by explaining, and in the case of the man of affairs, by being embodied in an invention that is useful and answers its purpose. In the aesthetic field, creation is accompanied by a momentary belief. Fancy, remarks Gruss, is necessarily joined to appearance. Its special character does not consist merely in freedom in images. What distinguishes it from association and from memory is this, that what is merely representative is taken for the reality. The creative artist has a conscious illusion. Bewusste Selbsteichung. The aesthetic pleasure is an oscillation between the appearance and the reality. Mystic imagination presupposes an unconditioned and permanent belief. Mystics are believers in the true sense. They have faith. This character is peculiar to them, and has its origins in the intensity of the effective state that excites and supports this form of invention. Intuition becomes an object of knowledge only when clothed in images. There has been much dispute as to the objective value of those symbolic forms that are the working material of the mystic imagination. This contest does not concern us here, but we may make the positive statement that the constructive imagination has never obtained such a frequently hallucinatory form as in the mystics. Visions, touch illusions, external voices, inner and wordless voices, which we now regard as psychomotor hallucinations, all that we meet every moment in their works, until they become commonplace. But as to the nature of these psychic states, there are only two solutions possible one naturalistic, that we shall indicate, the other supernatural, which most theologians hold, and which regards these phenomena as valid and true revelation. 
In either case, the mystic imagination seems to us naturally tending toward objectification. It tends outwardly by a spontaneous movement that places it on the same level as reality. Whichever conclusion we adopt, no imaginative type has the same great gift of energy and permanence in belief. 2. Mystic imagination, working along the lines peculiar to it, produces cosmological, religious, and metaphysical constructions, a summary exposition of which will help us understand its true nature. 1. The all-embracing cosmological form is the conception of the world by a purely imaginative being. It is rare, abnormal, and is nowadays met with only in a few artists, dreamers, or morbidly aesthetic persons, as a kind of survival and temporary form. Thus Victor Hugo sees in each letter of the alphabet the pictured imitation of one of the objects essential to human knowledge. A is the head, the gable, the cross-beam, the arch, arcs. D is the back, dos. E is the basement, the console, etc., so that man's house and its architecture, man's body and its structure, and then justice, music, the church, war, harvesting, geometry, mountains, etc., all that is comprised in the alphabet through the mystic virtue of form. Even more radical is Gerard de Naval, who, moreover, was frequently subject to hallucinations. At certain times everything takes on for me a new aspect. Secret voices come out of plant, tree, animals, from the humblest insects, to caution and encourage me. Formless and lifeless objects have mysterious turns, the meaning of which I understand. To others, contemporaries, the real world is a fairyland. The Middle Ages, a period of lively imagination and slight rational culture, overflowed in this direction. Many thought that on this earth everything is a sign, a figure, and that the visible is worth nothing except in so far as it covers up the invisible. Plants, animals, there is nothing that does not become subject for interpretation. All the members of the body are emblems. The head is Christ, the hairs are the saints, the legs are the apostles, the eye is contemplation, etc. There are extant special books in which all that is seriously explained. Who does not know the symbolism of the cathedrals, and the vagaries to which it has given rise? The towers are prayer, the columns the apostles, the stones and the mortar the assembly of the faithful, the windows are the organs of sense, the buttresses and abutments are the divine assistance, and so on to the minutest detail. In our day of intense intellectual development, it is not given to many to return sincerely to a mental condition that recalls that of the earliest times. Even if we come near it, we still find a difference. Primitive man puts life, consciousness, activity into everything. Symbolism does likewise, but it does not believe in an autonomous, distinct, particular soul inherent in each thing. The absence of abstraction and generalization, characteristic of humanity in its early beginnings, when it peoples the world with myriads of animate beings, has disappeared. Every source of activity revealed by symbols appears as a fragmentary manifestation. It descends from a single, primary, personal or impersonal spring. At the root of this imaginative construction, there is always either theism or pantheism. 2. Mystical imagination has often and erroneously been identified with religious imagination. Although it may be held that every religion, no matter how dull and poor, presupposes a latent mysticism, because it supposes an unknown, beyond the reach of sense, 
there are religions very slightly mystical in fact those of savages strictly utilitarian among barbarians the martial cults of the germans and the aztecs among civilized races rome and greece if we leave out oriental influences and the mysteries which according to aristotle were not dogmatic teaching but a show an assemblance of symbols acting by evocation or suggestion following the special mode of mystic imagination that we already know however even though the mystic imagination is not confined to the bounds of religious thought history shows us that there it attains its completest expansion to be brief and to keep strictly within our subject let us note that in the completely developed great religions there has arisen opposition between the rationalists and the imaginative expounders between the dogmatists and the mystics the former rational architects build by means of abstract ideas logical relations and methods by deduction and induction the others imaginative builders care little for this learned magnificence they excel in vivid creations because the moving energy within them is in their feelings in their hearts because they speak a language made up of concrete images and consequently their wholly symbolic speech is at the same time an original construction the mystic imagination is a transformation of the mythic imagination the myth changing into symbols it cannot escape the necessity of this on the other hand the affective states cannot longer remain vague diffuse purely internal they must become fixed in time and space and condensed into images forming a personality legend event or rite thus buddha represents the tendencies toward pity and resignation summing up the aspirations for final rest on the other hand abstract ideas pure concepts being repugnant to the mystic's nature it is also necessary that they take on images through which they may be seen for example the relations between god and man in the various forms of communion the idea of divine protection in incarnations mediators etc but the images made use of are not dry and colorless like words that by long use have lost all direct representative value and are merely marks or tags being symbolic that is concrete they are as we have seen direct substitutes for reality and they differ as much from words as sketching and drawing differ from our alphabetical signs which are however their derivatives or abbreviations it must however be noted that if the mystic fact is a naive effort to apprehend the absolute a mode of symbolic not dialectic thinking that lives on symbols and finds in them the only fitting expression it seems that this imaginative phase has been to some minds only an internal form for they have attempted to go beyond it through ecstasy aspiring to grasp the ultimate principle as pure unity without image and without form which metaphysical realism hopes to attain by other methods and by a different route one at once calls to mind plotinus whose highest philosophy is a kind of indescribable ecstasy however interesting they may be for psychology these attempts luring one on further and further by their seeming or real elimination of every symbolic element become foreign to our subject and we cannot consider them at greater length here three history shows that philosophy has done nothing but transform ideas of mystic production substituting for the form of images and undemonstrated statements the form of assertions of a rational system this declaration of a metaphysician saves us from dwelling on the subject long when we seek the difference between religious and metaphysical or philosophical symbolism 
we find in it the nature of the constitutive elements. Turned in the direction of religion, mystic symbolism presupposes two principal elements, imagination and feeling. Turned into a metaphysical direction, it presupposes imagination and a very small rational element. This substitution involves appreciable deviation from the primitive type. The construction is of greater logical regularity. Besides, and this is the important characteristic, the subject matter, though still resembling symbolic images, tends to become concepts. Such are vivified abstractions, allegorical beings, hereditary entities of spirits and of gods. In short, metaphysical mysticism is a transition form towards metaphysical rationalism, although these two tendencies have always been inimical in the history of philosophy, just as in the history of religion. In this imaginative plan of the world, we may recognize stages according to the increasing weakness of the systems, depending on the number and quality of the hypotheses. For example, the progression is apparent between Plotinus and the frenzied creations of the Gnostics and the Kabbalists. With the latter, we come into a world of unbridled fancy, which, in place of human romances, invents cosmic romances. Here appear the allegorical beings mentioned above, half-concept, half-symbol, the ten sephiros of the Kabbalah, immutable forms of being, the syzygies, or couples of Gnosticism, soul and reflection, depth and silence, reason and life, inspiration and truth, etc., the absolute manifesting itself by the unfolding of fifty-two attributes, each unfolding comprising seven eons, corresponding to the 364 days of the year, etc. It would be wearisome to follow these extravagant thoughts, which, though the learned may treat them with some respect, have for the psychologist only the interest of pathologic evidence. Moreover, this form of mystic imagination presents too little that is new for us to speak of it without repeating ourselves. To conclude, the mystic imagination, in its alluring freedom, its variety, and its richness, is second to no form, not even to aesthetic invention, which, according to common prejudice, is the type par excellence. Following the most venturesome methods of analogy, it has constructed conceptions of the world made up almost wholly of feelings and images, symbolic architectures. End of third part, chapter three.